you dream of a classroom where learning is natural? Can we inspire students to lifelong learning? What exactly is the purpose of an education? Inspiring students to be curious, independent, creative, innovative, deep thinking, confident, proactive, collaborative, determined, educated. Rise to the challenge of changing the world. This is teaching. This is learning. This is who we are. Welcome to the Tabletop Inventing Podcast. Are we overlooking some of our best technical talent through subtle discrimination? What is the best way to have influence over the public policy that influences you? Exactly how straight or winding is the path to career success? Join us as we discuss these big issues on today's podcast. And I always have people ask me because of where I work, oh, where should my kid go to school and what's the test scores? And I'm like, you know, you know your kid best. Go into the community where you want to have your kid go to school or go into the building and find a place where you think that your student and your child is going to do best. You know what I mean? What you would want for your student and then make that happen there. And then maybe help make it happen next door so that all students kind of get the same experience. This is the podcast where we talk innovation. Today's guest is working to influence educational technology in Washington State. We delve in pretty deep to civic responsibility from the perspective of education, as well as having girls in science, technology, engineering, and math. Which reminds me of a quote I saw the other day on a t-shirt. Some girls like to chase boys. I just like to pass them. Experience has taught me that girls in our inventor classes do not solve problems the same way that the boys do. However, do not take that to mean that girls solve problems in some inferior or maybe even in superior ways. They just do it differently. Unfortunately, because of the stigma, socialization, and other factors, only about 40% of the students in our teen inventor classes are female. This asymmetry has been discussed and dissected in many articles and books. But the fact remains that if we want more girls in STEM subjects, we need parents, friends, and teachers to encourage every girl they know to explore their technology interests because there's some force in society or perhaps buried deep in our lizard brain from the past that pushes girls aside when they begin to excel in technology. However, it does not have to be that way. Let me tell you a short story. Amy, Elizabeth, and Charity, not their real names, were students in our inventing camp this summer. Their job was to build an asteroid lander to safely deposit a probe on the surface. These fifth and sixth grade girls built the fuzziest, cutest, most awesome probe. I mean, it had a lamb and motors and microprocessors and conductance sensors, and it was beautiful precision in motion. Another girl in the same class Maddie discovered computer programming and decided on the spot that she had to have computer programming in whatever job she chose because, in her words, programming is so much fun. We believe that every girl should have the opportunity to find out if she likes technology and to receive all the encouragement she needs to succeed at it. To find out more about getting your girls involved in technology, visit InventingZone.com. That's InventingZone.com. Our guest today discovered in college that she loved computing and technology after getting politely pushed in other directions in high school. Julia Fallon 
is working with educational technology and teaching excellence in Washington State. She has a heart for helping students reach their full potential and for successful integration of technology into classrooms. Let's find out more about Julia's story. My guest today is Julia Fallon. Julia is the Title II Part A Program Supervisor in the Washington State Office of the Superintendent of Public Instruction. And if you find that to be a mouthful, she says that the easy way to remember what she is is she is a technology and learning alchemist. And I'll say that again. She's, she calls herself a technology and learning alchemist. I think that is interesting. We're going to ask her to explain that in a minute. Uh, she prides herself in living authentically online and offline. So, Julia, what is a technology and learning alchemist? I don't, I'm trying to remember when I actually came up with that idea. And it probably is from playing World of Warcraft. You know what I mean? (laughs) You know, well, you think about the different talents that your characters can have. And alchemy is one of the things that my little mage had. But I like the idea of, you know, I work in education. And uh, if people didn't get a sense of where I worked, I actually worked for the state agency here in Washington State that's responsible for K-12 education. And because we have an elected official, we're an office of versus a department. So that helps people understand the differences between state departments of ed and offices of. But the whole idea is that, you know, I've always been involved in technology or academic computing. That's how I got my start back in the day. And there's this thing about learning and technology that's always kind of played together. And there's always a little bit of magic. So that's kind of where that came from. So what do you do there then in the Office of the Superintendent of Public Instruction there in Washington? We can call it OS- OSPI for short. So right now I am in a group that is revolved around federal programs. And um, for those of you in school districts or in the education space, there are a lot of di- different they're considered title programs, which are tied to federal dollars. And my um, program that I'm involved in is really around teacher and principal effectiveness. If you've ever come across the term highly qualified teachers, that also falls sort of in our purview and everything else. But um, we are involved really in helping teachers be effective, helping principals as leaders be effective. And I came from ed tech. I was in ed tech prior to being in Title II. And what's interesting about being in Title II with an ed tech lens is I get to look at a lot of the professional development plans that districts are proposing um, when they apply for their grant funds and get to see how many are thinking about technology integration or get to see also what they think of technology integration. And then you get to see some districts that are really trying to push the envelopes and creating that space for students in today's kind of digital world. So you mentioned the term educational technology, and outside of education, not many people will know exactly what that is. Why don't you paint us just a quick picture of what people do if they have a degree in educational technology or if they're an educational technologist? So the way I explain it, because people often talk about IT versus ed tech or ET, is that educational technology is the technology that is used for learning or learning environments. So someone can be an IT person that works in the education space. And if they're helping support what's going on in classrooms or in learning spaces, it's really in the purview of ed tech versus an IT kind of function, which sometimes you know falls into the business operations productivity side of the house. So hopefully that will help people understand that educational technology is really all the things that go into supporting a learning space where you'd use technology. So working in an office like this in Washington, what kinds of things do you influence in the state education? So we influence policy a lot. 
and I liken policy to watching grass grow. So (laughs) (laughs) it definitely is. And I think people don't, I mean, people in the public space as well as in, in at the district level don't really always understand what that encompasses in terms of the length of time it takes for legislation to actually be conceptualized and actually be actualized and then be implemented and then legislative intent, right? Because sometimes what the legislators intended is not necessarily what shows up in practice, or when it hits the ground and interpreting what that means and helping provide guidance. It's a very long process. And one of the examples I use is like tech literacy is a requirement as part of No Child Left Behind, right? But really that tech literacy requirement came into play back in 1996 when Bill Clinton was in office as president. And there was legislation that came through around all eighth graders being tech literate and what does it mean to be tech literate and all that sort of thing. But we really didn't start collecting that data until probably 2008, 2009 as a state, right? And districts actually implementing tools to assess students' tech literacy and that sort of thing. And we're talking like 1996 to 2008. I mean, that's 10, 12 years already. And then we've gone beyond that to see where tech literacy is and and whatnot and how it's morphed into some other things. Because obviously things that we consider tech literacy back in 2005 is way different than what we consider tech literacy in 2015. So just the length of time and how things move and, and also legislatively where you may have this great idea or program, but sometimes you have to chop it up based on political will or political initiatives or political timing. So it's an interesting space to be in, in terms of development of policy development. It's not a very sexy thing to some people it might be, but it's an interesting thing to see a lot of moving parts and to see how things are kind of interconnected as well. So I don't know if that helps. I mean, at the state level, we do lots of other things. We gather reports for the feds and our state legislatures and, and that sort of thing, but we're sort of the stewards of a lot of the intent, right? of education in in our different spaces. So a lot of our listeners will have obviously kids who have been through or are going through the public education system. The view from the top, are there things that we should be focusing on as maybe as voters or as parents in the types of things that we can, like the conversations we can have between like your office and us as individuals? I always want to say, I mean... I don't think too many people have to get wrapped up at what's going on at at the level that I'm at. Does that make sense? I mean, occasionally there's initiatives from the voters that, you know, go, they percolate up. You definitely want to have your, I mean, when you want to, not just our state office, but it's really contacting your legislators because they're the ones that write laws and their intent of their laws has to be very clear to get the result you want when it gets implemented in a local setting. And the reason why I say that is a lot of the times I'm like, just get involved with your local, like the local school board. I mean, I don't know about other states. I know in Washington here, we have local control, which it's really up to the community to decide how certain things are implemented, you know, once they're kind of out there. Not that they don't have requirements and their state laws to follow, but, you know, they get to decide a lot of things on the ground. And I always have people ask me because of where I work, like, oh, where should my kid go to school? And what's the test scores? And I'm like, you know, you know your kid best. Go into the community where you want to have your kid go to school or go into the building and find a place where you think that your student and your child is going to do best. You know what I mean? What you would want for your student and then make that happen there. And then maybe help make it happen next door so that all students kind of get the same experience. So they are, I mean, I'm an advocate for all, not just my own child or my friend's kids or whatever. But a lot of the time when I have teachers that call me and they're asking about the requirements 
around highly qualified, you know, right now, NCLB is up for reauthorization. It's also, it's, it's actually known as ESEA, which is the Elementary and Secondary Education Act. NCLB is its sort of pet name. And I'm like, call your legislators right now. They're reauthorizing stuff. And if you don't like the way the, the law is written or the requirement that's here, you know, call them. And I mean, we do have a legislative process in place for citizens to get involved, right? And the more that they hear from us, the more important things are. And and this is a complete aside here, Steve, sorry, but you know, we have some technology legislation at the federal level that's coming out right now that will replace some educational technology dollars that were taken away a couple of years ago. And I strongly encourage your listeners, if they want to see more technology in the classroom that comes from the federal and the state level, to contact their federal Congress people and tell them that they support, you know, obviously more technology in the classroom and the professional development that teachers need to have to implement that well at the classroom level that's going on right now. So I'll actually ask you for some of that information afterwards, and we'll put that in the show notes for parents to get involved. I mean, I think I kind of answered your question, but it's like really like everybody's at the ground floor, right? And everybody has a, a role at the perch that they're at and to really just be an advocate where you are, if anything, right? Just don't sit back and let things happen to you. Try to understand where you are in the whole ecosystem, but you can affect change at the local level. Well, I think you answered the question I should have asked, which is, you know, how do we get involved? So if I was listening properly, you suggested first to just get involved with the the local school board where your kids are going to school. And uh, if you want to get involved in policy to call up your local representatives, is that kind of That's correct. I mean, I think that's just basic good wisdom. I mean, one of the... I can't remember when I got introduced to the town hall meetings and other things that happen at the local level, but I've become very aware that things that happen close to my home are very tightly connected with people who aren't who don't live too far from me, and the, and I can show up and put in my two cents. So if, if someone shows up to school board meetings and other things like that, is most of that just getting educated to what's happening, or is part of that you know they want to hear what we have to say if we show up as parents? I do think they want to hear what parents have to say. I think a lot of the time when talking to districts and whatnot, they feel like they don't get enough a student and parent voice. Does that make sense? They aren't sure how something's going to be received. I encourage districts to engage their parent community and student. I mean, I'm a big advocate of involving students in when you write policies that affect them at the local level to involve students because then they have some skin in the game. They won't feel like something's happening to them. They've actually participated in the process. It helps them be good citizens. You know what I mean? In essence, I mean, schools, if you think about it, really are a, like a, a place for values and community values to be kind of forged. And you want to encourage that dialogue and you want to encourage it in a way that's positive. You know what I mean? Not to say you can't have those difficult conversations, but to do it in a way that you can disagree, you know what I mean? And it's still, you still have a voice in there, but together collectively, you're engaging in the process. You can't, I mean, it goes back to the whole thing. Like if you don't vote, you can't complain kind of mentality. It's kind of like, there's always a worry that, right, you go and then you volunteer and then you become the person that carries the water all the time. But I mean, there's just different ways to get involved. I mean, it could be even at the community level versus the school, like if it's not just education, but you know, there's uh, community councils, you don't even have to go all the way to city council, you could just be involved in your community council. And that could be just smaller things to make the community a better place for everybody as well. I think for me, it's really about engaging and encouraging to be a citizen and participate in that sort of civic responsibility that we all have and are given a right to in this country, especially. Well, I I think that uh, we all have the feeling that we stand back and there's this machine out there called the government that goes. But I think we have a much bigger voice into it than than we actually admit. 
mm-hmm. and we don't always take that opportunity. And getting involved in local politics, getting involved in your local school board, these are things that are very impactful, it sounds like. They are. And again, we're also modeling for our students, right, our children, how to engage in that responsible civic life that we're part of. And what's interesting, though, the shift that I've seen over the years that I've been involved is it used to be really ground level, right? You were only in your community. But now with social media and everybody being connected, we're much more plugged into even the bigger picture. You can see more and it can be a little overwhelming, but just pick one spot and you know what I mean? And I always joke around your perch, find your perch and then make an effect change from your perch. I mean, it could be just participating in a letter writing campaign or just meeting with your school principal saying, hey, you know, I have a concern about X, you know, where are we going with this? You know what I mean? So that they can bring it to the school board or encourage your children to bring it forward too. You know what I mean? And see if they can affect change as well. I mean, we're all kind of in this together. So I'm curious now, listening through this and thinking about this, how you got to this place. So let's <laughs> let's rewind this quite a ways. Let's go all the way back to when you were in grade school, middle school, high school. Were you interested in a civic responsibility and other things at that time? Or is this something that grew over later in life? I, you know, it's funny. I do remember in the seventh grade wanting to be a senator after going through our U.S. government, you know, section of our book at the time. And I don't know where that came from. I think there's just a love of history and knowing where we've come from. Does that make sense? And and that sort of yeah. thing. And, and I'm probably going to date myself here for some folks. But th- then there was a page scandal. And then my uncle kind of said, you know, you don't really want to be a senator. Because, you know, the idea to be a senator was you go become a page when you're a young person and then you get into the halls of Congress and then you can kind of move forward. I don't know if that's kind of where the seed was planted in terms of like, oh, we have a voice to kind of do things. You know, I I don't know. I don't know if it's just I was fascinated by how it all works together and that sort of thing. Um, You know, just at Schoolhouse Rock, of course, was around and we had just a bill. I don't know. You know what I mean? I don't don't know if that's part of it. That's awesome. You're the... You're the first person on the podcast to mention Schoolhouse Rock. That is awesome. (laughs) But I grew up on that. That was part of Saturday TV for me. And I don't know how, I mean, it's not like I went to school and became a political science major. And I do remember running for student council in high school, but it was one of those things where I was finally, you know, you're tapped as a leader, but you don't see yourself as a leader. Does that make sense? Like your self-perception is not bad. And then I became... I went to a Catholic high school in New York City and I became part of a retreat program and I was a leader and it was just, I remember being sort of surprised, like, oh, you think I'm a leader? Like, where did you get that idea from? And not knowing what they saw. But the weird journey into the state political policy development arena has been a really strange journey. So I go off to school and at the time, I and and this kind of goes back to, I think, Steve, you and I have had some conversations, obviously, outside of this podcast around math and science. And I'm a big proponent. I know your, your wife is around girls and math and science fields and that sort of thing. And I remember being four years of math and science because we were college prep high school. And I don't remember anybody talking to me about engineering ever Wow, as a career choice. And, you know, I'm not that old, but I'm past Title IX when it was implemented. So it was really like, oh, what are you interested? Oh, you're into high school. You know, you run track. You like baseball. Do you want to go into sports medicine? It was more of a health careers kind of push versus, hey, I didn't, you know, we didn't know that you spent every summer when you came home to Seattle at the Science Center, right, tinkering. So I don't know if teachers didn't know what to look for. They just didn't see me in that traditional engineering kind of role, right? Because I wasn't the nerd girl. I was sort of, I could move between groups. 
a chameleon, social chameleon. But I went off to college, started out as a pre-physical therapy major after my first biology class, realized that this is not it. Like this is, and stopped doing that and then took a break, kind of took, you know, you're doing your liberal arts stuff, but then ended up getting into a business education program only because that was easier to complete that than to switch over to the business school because I was already in the school of education and health. And I could still become a system analyst, which at the time was the hot job in the early 90s, IBM and their system analysts. I remember that. And we thought, oh, at least there's jobs out there, right, for us if we get this kind of training. And during that program in my degree, I had to take some computer courses, you know, and and we're talking when I say computer courses, I'm talking about learning at the time WordPerfect 5.1 and Lotus 1.2.3. I remember those. Yeah, and I still miss WordPerfect 5.1 to this day. But, you know, and I was a little afraid. Here's this computer. What am I going to do? And then I realized after, and there were only one week courses. It was just like you needed to learn a little bit about these kind of desktop applications, if you want to call them that at the time. And I was like, oh, my God, why did I not learn this sooner? I would have been at the beach for three days. You know, like it was just all this, like I remember typing on a little word processor, you know, or an electric typewriter papers. And that was painful. Because if you made a mistake, you had to start over. Or if you got a thought in the middle of, you know, typing your sentence, you would have to start over again, right? Because how will it fit in? And anyway, so <laughs> do you I think you remember these? I do too. remember those days. <laughs> so it was a professor of one of those courses. I think it was probably my word, the word perfect course where he says, you really have the aptitude for this. And I'm like, you don't understand. Like, this is my first time really playing with a computer, not being afraid of like doing something wrong. Like I could see the potential. And he said, well, you need to come work for me on Fridays when I teach these workshops, these computer workshops to, you know, staff and faculty and students on campus. And I'm like, you don't like, again, you don't understand. I don't know this. He goes, you'll learn. And for some reason, I trusted him and got me a job for the other hours in the computer lab where I was surrounded by great people, you know what I mean, who worked with me and were willing to answer all my 10 million questions that I asked. And I took a little uh, programming course, which was Carol the Robot back in the day. You know what I mean? Like that was a great environment to learn. And it was pre-internet, if that, if anybody can believe that. And, but we were still connecting to other campuses through chat and news groups and things like that. So that was just an interesting idea. And then, you know, I just, I learned something new every day. So that's that kind of like learning and technology. Technology has allowed me really to learn something new every day. You're doing the same types of things, but you're learning something new every day. And you're kind of rewarded for your tinkering in some ways, right? If you're not afraid to see if something's going to do something, sometimes, you know, cool things happen. But to continue the story, I worked at the university in their computer lab, eventually became a computer lab manager around 1995 when the, as I call it, the commercial, you know, web sort of hits the hits the streets here and the internet now is being more accessible by the public. I had moved to Michigan and started working for the University of Michigan and was helping districts and schools around the state get connected to the internet. And then later on, I was helping them actually set up services like email services and web services so that they can use them. I wandered off for a little while to do a stint in corporate America, uh, just because it was more lucrative (laughs) than the ad space at the time. (laughs) And then ended up getting laid off from there during that kind of tech bubble burst. And then during that transition, though, I moved from Michigan back to Washington State, which is my home state, and found myself without my network. And this is pre-social networking. I didn't have my people network like I had in New York or Michigan. And I was finding a hard time finding a job. Like, do I go back to the 
post-secondary space and do academic computing stuff there or do I do something different? And there was a grant that came up in the county that I was living in that was sort of the bridge between what kids were learning in IT in high school and then where they could get jobs in the community after high school and get trained right while they're in high school for those jobs and somehow I had all the qualifications I mean literally like when you read job qualifications sometimes you're like I don't have that but I have everything else I had everything on this list and uh, went in for an interview got it and it was really interesting to see what they were doing in high school the knowledge that I brought though was really about like hi not everybody needs to be a computer scientist and program there are other jobs in the IT space right as an, as a field that we need we need tech writers we need web developers we need database people we need you know x y and z and that really was helping the school districts in my county that were offering credit to students, right, for these certifications or for um, two-year programs to actually start to find jobs in our area. And, you know, I'm just south of King County, which everybody knows is Microsoft land and Boeing land. But we here in Pierce County don't really have that strong of a software industry, per se. We have other major industries, but IT people are needed in there. So it was interesting doing that type of work, finding out, you know, what do IT people do in manufacturing? What do we do in healthcare? What do we do in military? And that kind of space. Uh, that work got the attention of the folks at the state level. And while the grant was winding down and I was thinking of what my next moves were, they came to me and said, hey, how would you like to come to the state and do some program development and help districts all over the state kind of figure out what they're going to do with their IT programs and how they connect to the communities and whatnot? And I was like, hi, I while I have a business education degree, I really don't have any experience in K-12. Like I am, I am not a K-12-er. And they said, don't worry about it. So off to the state I went. And I was in career and tech ed in that space for three years, helping develop statewide programs around IT, certifications for uh, students in high school where they could complete them in high school and then obviously hit the ground running after high school or post-secondary. And then I ended up getting a master's degree from Pepperdine in educational technology. That got the attention of our uh, educational technology folks. And I moved into that group for uh, six years and then three years ago, I guess it's two and a half years ago now, I moved into Title II and have been doing that at the state level. So I've been at the state now for 13 years, which is hard to believe that I would be in a place that butt up against in terms of logic and reason sometimes very often. You know, your brain as an IT person can tend to be very logical and rational and government spaces are not necessarily <laughs> known for that kind of environment. So that's kind of where how I ended up there. It's kind of a weird, weird story. It's kind of put a bunch of different pieces all together. That is fascinating. So you started off in PT and then into education and business and then back toward tech ed through a weird experience in a computer lab. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I have to, I go back to that professor in college that really he's the one that pulled me over the line. Does that make sense? Like yeah. when I think about the way that you can recruit and retain women in the STEM fields, He's the one that did it. And I mean, to this day, I can't go ask him. Um, he's no longer with us. But, you know, he saw something. And I think it was just one of those things like I was like, oh, oh, now that I learned this, let me learn more. You know what I mean? It was just that kind of like it quenched some sort of little bit of thirst that I had for for learning. And then he saw that I could be a bridge between like, I sort of end up between the engineers and the IT people and then the lay people. Right. Because I can translate. I can make the analogies for folks so they can help them understand that it's not this big, scary, you know, thing in this box. This is what the box can do for you. And this is how you ask for it. So there's a space there. So, yeah, it, it, he was the guy. 
and uh, he had had a profound impact. You know what I mean? In terms of he gave me an opportunity that I don't know if I would have been given, you know, in any other thing. And I don't know what I would be doing if I didn't have that opportunity, to be honest with you. A fairly common story with uh, that we hear on the podcast, actually, is that there's often someone along the way that has this profound left-hand turn power on an individual's life and just gets them headed off into a direction they hadn't thought of before. And it very often is uh, an educator, either in middle school, high school. In your case, it was in college. It seems very often that it is someone who bothers to take the time to actually watch their students, to Mm -hmm. understand the students, understand what they're thinking, because you had an aptitude, but you weren't an expert coming in. So it wasn't exactly the grades necessarily. It was something else. It was beyond that. There was something else that he was picking up on that was uh, that was powerful. And having someone in your life who bothers to take that much time is really important. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because I remember I ended up inheriting his courses that he taught to the the campus population which was great. You know what I mean? It, there is a way that I've, I, I think I've always been sort of a teacher in some respect, but um, he allowed me to kind of step into that role as well because, you know, I use a lot of what he did, right? He had a great way of explaining it and I was able to do, you know, use it and riff on that and everything else. But sort of a nod to him to kind of look beyond. I mean, things like I talk about with IT careers, so computer science and database database programmers are pretty similar in terms of skill set, right? They program. Except that when you look at a database administrator, from a personality perspective and sort of like a world view, they're slightly different than your <laughs> computer scientists. I don't know quite how to describe what that slight difference is, but what I tried to impart to teachers when they were thinking about what kind of course offerings they wanted to ask their high school students or what kind of career, you know, influence they could have. Sometimes that C it looks like a CS student, but they're really not. They're a DBA, right? They have those sort of qualities that a DBA sort of exhibits and that they would be much happier in a DBA role than a CS role. Does it make sense? Like, but you have to look for it. Yeah. You know, you have to recognize there's a difference and look for it. And, you know, not everybody's going to be a computer scientist. But, you know, I found a few cases where they were great DBAs. Like, you give them that kind of role and that kind of responsibility and that focus, and they just go and tear it up. But they struggled as a regular computer science programmer. Well, you have this interesting perspective coming through this circuitous path into technology education. And we always ask this question in the podcast, in the digital age, what does it mean to be educated? And you've been thinking about this probably for a long time. So what does that mean? What does that word educated mean in this digital age that's kind of come upon us? So I think for me, well, it calls this whole shift, you know, into the internet and then having access outside of it really crystallized for me in Philadelphia in 2005 when it used to be NAC, but now it's ISTE. A keynoter named David Weinberger, who's also one of the co-authors of a book that I love called The Clue Train Manifesto, talked about how the internet, in essence, has brought us back to this place where we're back at the Greek marketplace, right? Where, you know, and this goes back to our earlier part of our conversation, where the Greek marketplace and that town square is where we discuss stuff right? Unfiltered, right? You show up, I show up, we have a conversation. 
Yeah. We don't have any gatekeepers in front of us. We don't have anybody controlling the message. We both have access. And I think for me, it was that whole idea of he talked about Encyclopedia Britannica. I mean, he just crystallized it for me. It was like, oh, I get it now. But how, you know, remember the encyclopedias? And I know some people are going to be a certain age like, what are you guys talking about? Like, really? <laughs> but, you know, you, you could buy the sets. And then, you know, like the way they would sell it to you is like you'd only get a few at a time and you'd only have the P section, but not the, you know, F section and everything else because they were not cheap. Own a set of encyclopedias was a big deal in a house. Yeah. And he talked about how, you know, there's only so many topics that the encyclopedia could cover in that hard copy. And the idea about Wikipedia is that if you're interested in deep fried Mars bars, you can be the expert on it. (laughs) <laughs> there's a web page for it there's a you know uh, basically an encyclopedia for that entry and people come together because they're interested right or they have a passion for it or they just have a thing for it and i think in this digital age i know a lot of people talk about like is it important for kids to know facts and write cursive and whatnot i think it all comes down to what your community and what you value i think it's hard to make the case for students to memorize the 50 state capitals when they can find it in 0.02 seconds on Google. I think for me is what technology and the digital age is allowing us to do though is, is to not have to store those kind of mundane things in our heads, but the process for us to find them and to evaluate it and to know whether or not it's credible, can I trust it? You know, that sort of thing. Those are the skills that we are freeing ourselves up to get that's what you can use school time for in essence you know what i mean as opposed to saying well is it important that everybody knows the 50 state capitals why is it important and have conversations around what we chose as opposed to just because you know what i mean why do we believe it's important to have 50 state capitals maybe it's a civics thing right it's important to know <laughs> you know what i mean that's why or why is it important for kids to learn cursive i'm not necessarily against cursive but is it a good use of our time in schools Some people, there is some research saying it's a great way for kids to build certain neurons and whatnot. And and there's a case for it, right? You know, this tactile thing as opposed to typing. There's there's different things being used and we just need to learn more about whether or not we should keep it or not. But it goes back to that knowledge is conversation. We are now, we have access to everything. You know what I mean? We can get into it. But the bigger thing for me is, can we use the time in schools better to help students be able to make those decisions and be engaged and be responsible and be safe and uh, make it safe places for kids to fail versus out in the real world. I don't know if I've ever had anyone bring up the time factor in this particular conversation, <laughs> but that's an important piece because we really only have 24 hours in a day and we have to sleep eight of those hours and then we have to eat and shower and go back and forth to school or work. And but by the time you get all of those other things taken out, there's you know, maybe eight to 12 hours during the day when you can do learning and at school, what, like five or six, you know, once you take out lunches and other things. So Mm -hmm. it does matter where you spend your time. And I think I agree with you that that it's hard from here to just X out certain things or to focus in on certain things without having a discussion about it. And the truth is, I think we won't know for years Mm -hmm. whether we should learn cursive or not know cursive. I I mean, I think that uh, we'll have to wait and see what happens when we can actually look back and take the data. But reflecting about it and thinking and making choices about the time you spend and uh, the internet has given us the ability to choose differently. We don't have to know those 50 state capitals in order to navigate because we can look them up. And that gives us a different kind of freedom. I thought about that. I like that. Yeah. Well, and I think, too, it's it goes back to there's formal learning and then there's informal learning. As humans, we've been learning since the moment that we could start processing all this stuff. I mean, honestly, it, it doesn't stop. I think the formal learning is really us 
and you see some of this happening and you see it happening in communities, like really questioning the purpose of school. Is it so that in Jefferson, you know, back in the day to um, basically prepare informed citizenry, right? So they can participate in civic life. Is it for job and career? <laughs> you know what I mean? Is it <laughs> yeah. work and ready? I mean, there's so many different purposes and I think it's being duped out. I think there's a place for everything, but it's really deciding what, you know what I mean? During that formal time, you know, is it important that all students everywhere in the United States know a certain thing? I don't know. You know what I mean? Or do communities have a say, you know what I mean, for a portion of that? Or I don't know. You know what I mean? Like that's what's being duked out and we're seeing some of the symptoms of that, you know what I mean? Or the events because of that, those conversations. All right. I'm going to go ahead and put you on the spot. Okay. And ask you the question, what is the purpose of an education? <laughs> so I was, I remember you, so, so as, if people don't know this, Steve sends you these two questions ahead of time. So you have a little bit of time to think about this. And I was like, well, does he mean formal education? Does he mean <laughs> informal education? Does he, what does he mean by education? And you can see where my curiosity is just dissecting that apart, right? It's like, oh, well, you could go in off in different things. So the purpose, I mean, I think for me personally, is the Jefferson Jeffersonian kind of viewpoint, though I include everybody, man, woman, child in that kind of grouping. I think at the time he had a different worldview, but it is about informing citizenry so that you can make informed decisions. I, you know, if you disagree with me on certain things, that's great, but I want you to be informed about it. I just don't want you to be spouting what, you know, someone posted on Facebook because it makes us better as a community, it makes us better as a family units. It makes us better as just humans on this earth. So I think for me, it's going to go back to the purpose of an education. I think if you want to talk about the K-12 space is really to help students develop those skills so that they can be informed citizens going forward and they can be safe, look out for their own safety as they're going forward as well. I mean, in essence, it's sort of, you know, if my daughter comes home and says she wants to be a plumber, I'm going to help her be the best plumber ever. I just hope that she can figure out how to solve problems um, for herself or um, look up resources or, you know, manage things for herself or be able to communicate effectively. Well, I think we're just going to wrap it right there. (laughs) Because you and I could go on talking about these things all day because we're both excited about education and about policy and about, you know, what's the best way to do those things. So if our audience is uh, interested in getting in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? It's probably Twitter. I know that I'm not as active on there as I have been in in, uh, years past, but I do keep an eye on it. I'm at Julia Fallon. So it's J-U-L-I-A. F is in Frank, A-L-L-O-N. They can get a hold of me there. And I believe you're going to post my LinkedIn if they want to post uh, yep. there as well. Yep. So, yeah. Thank you, Julia. That was a lot Thanks, of fun. Thanks, Steve. Thanks. Did you enjoy today's guest? Let us know on the Tabletop Inventing Facebook page. Just type in Tabletop Inventing into your Facebook search to find us. And while you're at it, like our page. To find out more about Inventor Camps, after-school programs, training opportunities, and our premium innovation fellowship program for high school students, visit inventingzone.com. That's inventingzone.com. Don't wonder about the future. Sign up, and we'll help you create it.